You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. the show where we review Blu-rays and DVDs coming out. Some of stuff may not even be on your radar. And today joining me is John Golson. Hello. Fellow film critic and uh, Blu-ray aficionado. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let me adjust my monocle. I mean, if you lived in, like, you had, like, space was no issue, would you try to collect every single Blu-ray that was even vaguely worth owning? Oh, gosh. Um... Like it's, have the giant Bruce yeah, Wayne library yeah, I mean, room. It, even though you know we we just had the conversation that I'm trying to switch everything to digital because that seems to be the future. And again, it reduces. I mean, we're both collectors. You just amass so much stuff, and I need to scale back. Right. And the the home video is a lot easier to do than the comics at this point. So, uh, but if I yes, the 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 caveat was if I had the room, if I just had. Welcome to my library, sure. and I have like yes, sure, giant Victorian-looking yes. library, yes. like in Bruce Wayne's man- mansion, with just filled with mm-hmm. Blu-ray copies of things. Well, that's what I've been doing. So that's what I've been doing digitally too, is getting stuff that I would never normally get just based on price or whatever, like uh, you know, old movies from my childhood or things like that, sure. just based on like I have. The oh, Witch- that's five. Bucks. I have the original Witch Mountain movies. Yeah. Not, I know what you mean. Yeah, 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 that kind of stuff. <laughs> so yeah, I would do that. I would do that. I, I always dream of the idea of having that, except in a technological sense, where mm-hmm. there's a, just a room with all the discs and then a flip book in alphabetical order of all the covers, and then you just pr- like press in like a jukebox the code for each one, and this giant mechanical arm reaches in and grabs the disc and puts it in. Well, that's that's like the that's like a workaround for the new hotness, which is people putting their stuff on a hard drive and mm-hmm. then just having it accessible. Just and there's a lot of like software out there you can buy that that's precisely what it's for yeah. for cataloging and making it as pretty as possible yeah. you know with all the data on each one I actually messed with that br- briefly but just briefly enough to realize that um it didn't like my computer uh. <laughs> oh well i might i've got a, a pc that's relatively tricked out that i never use and i keep telling myself i'm going to do that with it mm-hmm. and uh and then i'm too cheap to buy windows <laughs> <laughs> i'm like that's all i'd be using it for yeah yeah, yeah, I've 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 got a little bit of the itch to to start messing with a something on the hard drive like a Plex or something to move my collection over, but that's just started, and I know it's a side effect of me again trying to move as much of my collection digital as I possibly can. Sure, I got rid of like a shelf and a half of Blu-rays last week. Nice, like I I got all the 4K Harry Potters, so I don't need my Harry Potter Blu-rays anymore. So I upgraded even visually for the Harry Potters. Nice, um, but yeah, it's it's. Trying to trying to get there. I'd like to I'd like to cut my collection, physical collection, down and expand my digital collections. So. Well, keep in mind that all the links you guys see on the actual page here for this, with the images of the movies, they lead to the Amazon page. And if indeed you were going to go through those links and you wanted to buy those, but with John going, man, I don't need any more stuff, but I do want to own this movie. Even if you buy just the digital copy from them, we get a kickback. So yeah, and a big deal to me has been movies everywhere because it 
it does what people wanted it to do more or less. It's probably like 80% there, but if I buy something on Amazon, it shows up on voodoo. Mm-hmm. So, or vice versa. Like yeah. it's, it's yeah. We voodoo ties into everything for me now. Like yeah. the whole Disney. Yeah. The movie movies anywhere. Disney mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. It all finally logged back into there. Everything just sort of collected in one spot. Yeah. I noticed it when I think the first thing I noticed was I had a copy of big on Amazon that I bought on sale one day. Big was like three bucks. So I bought it on Amazon, but I don't own a lot of movies on Amazon. Mm-hmm. So here's Big just sitting by itself, you know. And then when I connected to Movies Everywhere or Movies Anywhere, it's Movies Anywhere. Movies I think everywhere. it's Movies Anywhere. Movies I Anywhere. Think. Big then showed up on my Voodoo account. And cool. Yeah, it was really cool. Anyways. Well, uh, as with all our shows on Digital Noise, we are brought to you by two things. Not just on Digital Noise, on one of us.net. We're brought to you by two things. One is the subscribers. It's you guys. This site cannot exist without subscribers. And honestly, we're constantly in need of more people showing their support by putting that subscription. I mean, even if you can't, can't afford much, what is $2 a month or $5 a month going to hurt you? But it's going to help us in a huge way. And it means more content, more upgrades, newer stuff. As you can see, if you guys follow our YouTube account, our Facebook account of one of us, Net. We have been putting out more and more videos of stuff. We've got an upcoming really fun uh, zombie nerf tag game event called Zed Town that we covered, and the video looks to, that we're assembling looks to be like really hysterical. So more crazy stuff like that. But that depends on you guys, as does indeed just us existing at all. The other source is Oscar Blues. Brewery. Now, this is a beer company that is located, I believe they have one in Denver as well, but here in Austin, they're located at 10420 Metric Boulevard, where they've got a beautiful brew pub. You can go and try out all their beers. It's pretty cheap. There's a stage. They have live shows there all the time. I'm actually trying to get Karaoke Apocalypse hooked up with the booker there and get them to play, because that would get all my buddies out to show up. Um, they were the first craft beer to put their beers in cans. They were the guys who started that trend, because you know now everybody's doing it, and they did it with Dale's Payoil back in the day. Um, I, they make quite a good, really good hoppy beers, good stouts and porters. Uh, my personal favorite right now is their seasonal, the Fugly, which is a fruit IPA using like a, a really oddball, like Hawaiian and Japanese fruit you've never heard of. Uh, I think the Ugly and the Fuzu are the two fruits. Um, who the hell calls a fruit ugly? It's not nice, <laughs> uh, but it's so delicious. A lot of great stuff there. They are our beer sponsor. They are the ones who basically keep beer in my house so uh, I can make all the people recording on these shows happy and everybody is glad because it's a really, really tasty beer. Anyway, with all that being said, it is time for us to move on to the reviews. And we are going to start off with one of the latest, well, a couple of the latest Arrow releases here. And the movies in question uh, that come on a single disc are a couple of old Italian spaghetti westerns called A Pistol for Ringo and The Return of Ringo, which one would presume by the titles that they are sequels to each other. Not so much. It's more like, let's take the exact same cast and have them play completely different roles <laughs> in each one. Yeah. I mean, they're fun for what it is. I mean, I certainly wouldn't recommend these over what, what this series, these two films are more often than not compared to was the Trinity films, which I, I did enjoy. Um, these are, I don't know, they're, they're a little goofier, but not quite as funny. Oh, really? See, I've never seen the Trinities. Okay, you should. I've got them if you want to borrow them. Sometime. I've never seen the Trinities. So for me... A Pistol for Ringo, I thought was really funny and like a laid back kind of almost modern sensibility way. Like it was such like stuff that they said was witty and situations were kind of funny, but it wasn't, it didn't feel necessarily like, I feel like a lot of sixties comedy still kind of 
you know, comedy tastes change and everything. Oh, sure. I still feel like some of the 60s stuff played a little more broad, a little more slapsticky. And this felt really modern in the way that it was mostly character and dialogue-driven comedy. Uh, I really liked the first one. And then the second one on the, the second uh, – well, it's not the second one. Yeah, but The Return of the Ringo. The Return of Ringo played a lot more as to what I think most people expect from a spaghetti western. It's kind agree. of a revenge story. The first one had more laughs in it. The second one also had some – awkward moments to be sure there's yeah. a whole bit where like his daughter like that he didn't know he had is now in the house of like the main villain who is who is uh because he was presumed dead a civil war soldier she's being kind of forced into a marriage with the local rich asshole mm-hmm. and uh he sneaks into the house and he sees the daughter on the bed who's like a preteen with her dress completely up over her ass and yeah. he reaches over and like covers her up and it's supposed to be tender but instead it's like Ooh. Times have changed. <laughs> they really have. The first movie here, which is a hostage drama, basically, is Montgomery Wood, who plays Ringo, or the main character in both of these, who they call as Angel Face. I don't know if I'd want to be called Angel Face. I get it's a compliment, but it sounds like some form of cake. Um, uh, he's shown off right first to be a sweet guy. He's playing hopscotch with some local kids. Mm-hmm. But then some bad guys show up, and he roundly murders them all with, without... Even breaking a sweat. And so he's thrown into the local uh, uh, jail cell to await his trial, which apparently is the second time this has happened. This guy's got kind of a history for being very good at killing bad guys when they show up to kill him and him having to go through the rigmarole of being found not guilty. Uh, but there's all the other stuff going on with the uh, with the bad guys led by Fernando Sancho, who's running into town and causing havoc. Um and then there's a rich landowner uh, played by Antonio Cezas, who is uh, preparing a huge ball for Christmas with his daughter, Ruby, played by Hallie Hammond, who happens to be the sheriff's fiance. Um, and it ends up with this with a bank robbery going wrong. The bad guys all holding up at the rich guy's house and holding them hostages. And the sheriff basically springing Ringo and saying, OK, you got to go in and hang- handle this. And then we'll see. Yeah, there's a little bit of like it takes a bad guy to catch a bad guy stuff because right. he's not he's not evil, but he's a scoundrel. If anything, he's almost like a Han Solo esque type. Agreed. Um, and so they he is sort of like, hey, I know how to I know how to get these guys out of here. I know how to how to change this whole situation. And they they know him well enough to go all right if you're if you're saying you've got an idea then we probably need to trust you on this <laughs> and then and then they do um, and, and it's a lot of him playing both sides against the middle yeah. where even as an audience member you you're like is he Betraying the sheriff as well. Mm-hmm. He's he, largely you always feel like, well, ultimately he's just protecting his own skin. But you're also like, well, maybe he really is loyal to the sheriff. Or wait, maybe he really isn't. And that's kind of part of the more fun parts of the film. I thought is that idea, like he is such a scoundrel yeah. that it's possible he is playing both sides against the middle. Um, I I did have a lot more fun with this first one. Mm-hmm. It, it has that character is just so much more interesting than when he returns in the second film, uh, the Return of Ringo, which is once again um, weirdly in a he comes from the Civil War and he's really tanned, so everyone assumes he's a Mexican and he just goes with it. <laughs> His name is Brown too, which is well, he like, dies himself. Oh, is that what it was? I missed. There's that, a, there's a weird so so it's not. It's not alluded to in the dialogue, which I think is what makes it so um, – so he he comes back and he it, – it's not – again, it's not Ringo. It's it's this guy coming back from war and the, uh, the, the 
his hometown, I guess, is overrun with Mexican banditos, so he goes deep cover brown face to, uh, <laughs> to, to, to correct the situation. But there's a moment in the very beginning of the movie, he is sick and his buddy goes and gets him medicine and he dips his hand. He takes the medicine, he looks at it, then he dips his hand in the thing with the medicine in it. And when he pulls his hand out, his hand is, is brown. I say that's and when he from there on, he's all brown face. But it's so, he, he never executes, like, he never says out loud, like, this is what I'm going to do or anything like that. But there is that moment where he, he basically paints himself brown. Right. Well, uh, in this one, it, it's like his mission is more personal. Yeah. Because he's mad at his ex-fiance for mm-hmm. going ahead and getting married again without even, without him being dead. Uh, even though she really does love him, she just thought he was dead and is in a situation where she's not being given a lot of choice. And he really wants to, one way or the other, get his daughter back. Yeah. Uh, so I don't, I feel like that takes away, the personal level of this kind of takes away from the humor that was inherent in the oh, first yeah, one. Oh, yeah. I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. There's there's that quirky side character who's like obsessed with flowers mm-hmm. that they it's a running joke that I never understood the joke I guess I was like uh okay so dude likes flowers that's a thing that keeps happening in this movie yeah there's a lot of things like that in this I'm like I don't understand what that's supposed to be but okay just weird I didn't think the second one was bad it just I, the first one was one where I my expectations were nil like I went in not expecting anything it was just it wasn't, oh boy, goody, I'm a fan of spaghetti westerns. I was very much just like, it was one of those things where I was honestly probably like, let's get this over with. Like, let me watch this foreign uh, western from a billion years ago that's been forgotten by time. Let me get this over with. And then I was so charmed by it. Like, I found it such a charming movie. I really, really liked it. And then the second one was a lot more of what I pictured the first one to be in my head. It had the rhythms and the feel and the the... Everything about it was sort of that like lower grade spaghetti western yeah. that's that you can tell it's sort of aspiring to be like the other movies that are out at the time. Um, I mean, not having exhaustively watched all the spaghetti westerns out there, but watched more than I would say most people. Mm-hmm. In descend in descending order at the top, you of course got all the Sergio Leone yeah. Leone classics. And then you have the first Django, which, by the way, guys, if you've watched Sergio Leone films, you have not seen Django. It's kind of essential viewing. It's fantastic. And then you have Trinity. And then there's literally everything else. (laughs) You know, I mean, I've seen probably 10 or 12 other Spaghetti Westerns on top of those. And I'm like, yeah, they're all kind of about the level of one of these two films. Yeah. They're like either, yeah, they're entertaining, but you would never put them on the level of those other movies. Yeah, the second one felt like Diet Sergio Leone to me, whereas the first one didn't. But you're telling me it feels like Diet Trinity, which means I need to watch Trinity. Yeah, Trinity is fun, for sure. Uh, This comes with a 37-minute, 56-second revisiting Ringo featuring uh, Tony Raines, who is a critic getting into the history of the film, discovered. Uh, and it talks about, in fact, yeah, they're not really related, despite having the same director, writer, and cast. There's uh, 21 minutes and 52 seconds. They called him Ringo, which is an old archival piece with uh, Montgomery Wood, although his real name is Giuliano Gemma, who played the lead in both these, and Lorella De Luca. There's a Greek Western tragedy at 26 minutes, 32 seconds, which is another archival piece with Lorella De Luca and camera operator Sergio Diafosi. De- De- There's audio commentaries on both films by uh, some spaghetti Western experts, if you will, the original trailer. Trailers, an image gallery, and, and an insert booklet that comes in. So overall, it's a good deal. Yeah, I thought this was a super fun double feature. 
Uh, next up is another Arrow film, which is the Rob, this is a Robert Altman film that when I was in my period, probably when I was in my early twenties and I was kind of briefly obsessed with Altman and wanted yeah. to watch everything. This was kind of my like holy grail, but nobody had it. Nobody made a copy of images. And the reason was because not only did I love Altman films at that point, but I also was really starting to super get into horror movies. Mm-hmm. And this was always listed as one of those. Like, yeah, it's kind of a horror movie. It's like the only time Altman did something that's kind of a horror movie. And I was like, oh, God, where is it? Where can I find it? Well, here it is. And I have very mixed feelings about it. And that being said, it kind of – it's clear. It's cribbing from uh, uh, Ingmar Bergman um, to some degree. Yeah. Um, with his – what was it? Uh, Persona, I believe. Uh, I didn't, I've never seen Persona. I have seen Repulsion, which it reminded me a lot it's of. It's cribbing from Repulsion. It's yeah. cribbing from Three Women. Um, but it definitely is its own thing as well. This film features a uh, wealthy housewife and a children's storybook author, play, uh, Catherine, played by Susanna York, who, by the way, the, chil- the children's book in this movie they show is an actual children's book that was written by Susanna York. Oh, cool. Funny little note. And she, she, well, they, they all go by the names of themselves too, don't they? Like, well, each, it, well, so she's Catherine, but, but there's like, an actress whose name is Catherine who's playing a character named okay. Susanna. And they, there's this weird meta thing where every character's name is actually the name of one of the other actors who okay, in turn. Okay, that's what was confusing me then. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's, uh, there's a lot of weird in jokes that I don't think anyone ever completely got here, but it's clear that they're in the structure there somewhere like that. Okay. Anyway, so she's getting weird phone calls uh, from a female voice that sometimes in the middle of other phone conversations is cutting in, uh, suggesting that her husband, uh, Hugh, played by Rene Aubergeois, who, by the way, you probably geeks out there like me probably best know him as Odo in Deep Space Nine, um, amongst many other good roles that he's played in his career, that insinuating that he's having an affair. Um, and she has gotten to the point where she's just completely disheveled. She's having trouble dealing with it. And suddenly the movie does this weird thing where he'll leave the room and another guy will come in, a completely different guy who is apparently an ex-lover of hers who's now dead and insinuating, oh, no, I'm not dead. Or, well, maybe I am dead. And But they're never in the same room at the same time. Like the husband will go out and he'll come in and vice versa. Or they'll just switch places instantaneously. Yeah. And it's a... You know, this is when we get the beginning of this sort of horror aspect of the thing, but it seems clear she's losing her mind. Um, and he takes her to vacation to the countryside right off the, the, the bat. I mean, she literally sees herself from a distance getting out of her car and going into the, 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 the building. So there's a sense of doubles throughout this thing. And what's, we, what's the Jake Gyllenhaal movie from a couple of years ago? Uh, Enemy? Enemy. Yeah. yeah. The, the kind of similar. Uh, there's some similarities to Enemy as well. I mean, obviously, this made decades before, but sure. Uh, but yeah, that's a I, Denis Villeneuve film. Yeah, just talking about it now made me think of it. I always laugh at the end of that movie because I'm like, look, Jake finally got to become Spider-Man. Yeah. Have <laughs> uh, you? Mean, by the way, have you heard my my uh, my my budding? This is the ultimate thing I would like to see the MCU do. Theory? No. They make one of the Spider-Man movies that reimagines completely the Clone Saga, but mm-hmm. with Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield playing Ben Riley and Kane. Yeah, that's funny. I would kill to watch that movie, <laughs> and I'm sure they'd be more than happy to do it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so she. It's basically just watching her breakdown and going crazier and crazier and more the the doubling happening more and more until it all ends up in in violence and her not being clear wait who did i kill um and i think old uh, my problem is we never really feel like we get to know enough to care about Catherine as a character so when she starts going crazy right off the bat i don't really 
feel anything for her or any of these other characters. And it's so goddamn abstract, like in what's actually happening, ambiguous, that by the end it was like, I, I couldn't tell you what happened in that movie. Yeah. It's a difficult watch. It's a, uh, it's, you know, you can kind of, you can kind of appreciate the vibe of it, but in regards to it being like a movie that draws you in and you, you know, I think you get you you early on. I think know that the movie's not going to answer anything for you, and so then it's just an exercise in sort of like these characters switching in and out and like trying to show her frame of mind. I don't mind horror movies like this. I'm a big fan, for instance, of like uh, Let's Scare Jessica to Death, Me which, too. which kind of has some of the same sort of like, is she crazy? Is she not? Or even Jacob's ladder. Yeah. Um, but the way that this is done is not story wise, character wise is not narratively interesting enough, uh, to make the vibe rewarding. Yeah. Uh, it can't, it, man cannot survive on vibe alone. No, there's some, there's (laughs) some a little bit more great Altman camera work in here. And I think Susanna York, despite her character not having the depth that she needs to sell you on caring about her, she gives a solid performance. Yeah, acting's good. Yeah, but it's, you know, there's a reason why this film, even though it won some awards when it came out, was quickly subjugated to the dustbin of Altman films where nobody really even talked about it anymore. It was one of those I didn't even know existed till I was doing deep research and going, what the fuck is this? Images? I never even heard of that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's you know, at the time... Uh, was probably, um, you know, he was coming, he was coming off mash, right? I believe this was so. probably a bigger deal at the time for somebody who just made kind of a cultural hit to do basically, uh, almost quasi experimental, like art house movie. Um, you know, probably had a lot more post dinner discussion in 1970, whatever than, uh, than <laughs> rewards for viewers today. Uh, yeah. Uh, I get the feeling that this was one of those, fantasy projects he'd had for in his head, rolling around in his head for a long time, but nobody would ever give him the money to do it. Mm-hmm. And then he had a huge hit and then he could do whatever he wanted. Yeah. Uh, and as all too often happens with directors in that position, it's not as good as you'd want it to be. Yeah. It's, I would say it's for completists only, or if you are a Rene Auberjonois fan, it's cool to see him in a leading male role, yeah. uh, especially as a young man. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I think I first encountered him on Benson. Me too. I <laughs> love that show. <laughs> uh, there's a commentary by two critics, a select scene commentary by the late Robert Altman. There's a 24-minute Imagining Images, which is archival piece with on-screen Altman interviews. There's an interview with actress Catherine Harrison. Uh, there's a uh, appreciation by Stephen Thrower, which is basically insight into the film. What, yeah, were- I'll say that Arrow's package for this is you could have... You could have slapped a Criterion label on the front of it, and I just would have assumed it was a Criterion release. Arrow has kind of become that company that that's that's who they are, except they're willing to take on some of the schlock and treat it with the same level of reverence. I mean, I pretty much say there's Criterion for the the most of that high level. We all agree this is Mm. like important art, film and art, even if it's a little more genre with some of their releases. It's still like, yeah, I think we all agree this is a big movie that deserves further study and attention. Arrow is like... And not in terms, of, I would say, in quality of release, but in terms of quality of titles they pick is that next step down. Okay, here are the films that aren't universally beloved, perhaps, but have a lot of people who are either super curious about because of who was involved and made it or like 
is considered a, a, a cult classic and yeah. they're so good at it. I really like Arrow as a company and a lot of their side companies as well. They're connected to a couple other people who've been doing things like the people who are doing those, like, uh, that did black, um, the, the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. Oh God. Yeah. I can't remember Forgetting the name of it, but there's like oh, all these bonus one, features yeah. on it and you're just like, really? This obscure little Jean-Claude? Black Eagle. Yeah. But black I can't Eagle? remember the name of the company. It's not a great movie for by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, maybe if you love Jean-Claude Van Damme a lot more than I do. Uh, let's move on to the next one, which is actually my pick of the week here. Um, the, the Passion of Joan of Arc, a film I really felt guilty for not having seen for the bulk of my deciding I was serious about film life. Um, only recently did I become inter- really interested in director Carl Theodore Dreyer because mm-hmm. I saw his Vampire and I thought, oh, now we know where David Lynch gets it from. Uh, <laughs> it's really great, creepy, bizarro vampire film. But this is old, silent Cinema, which I know is for a lot of people, and even me as well, like, I've got to be really sure this is something worth watching before I'm probably going to sit down with it. Like, I'll sit in front of any Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin film, but for dramas especially, I'm like, this better be good. And I'd always heard how important and influential this film was, despite being roundly, well, just really divisive and largely disliked by a lot of critics at the time when it came out because of his technique of using nothing but close-ups throughout almost the entire film. There's practically no establishing shots in this whole movie. And he also pissed off his studio because he insisted they built one of the most expensive sets of all time to build this huge, like, cathedral and everything. And you barely see it. (laughs) He's like, I needed to get the actors in the mood. It was different than I thought it would be. I didn't realize that. I'll just, I'll kind of roll this into the synopsis, but I didn't realize that it, it was about her trial. It's not, I thought it was a biography. I thought it was more of a life story, you know, showing her actually doing the events that lead to her, you know, trial. Right. But I was, I was a little surprised by how specific the movie was in regards to what period of time in her life it wanted to explore. Yeah, It's a very, I mean, it's literally her trial to her burning at the stake. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's the space of a day, maybe day and a half. There was a movie that came out the same year, and I'm blanking on the name of it right now, that was also very warmly received, although it's still thought of well by critics today. It was more the life of Joan of Arc. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of comparing and contrasting by critics of the time between the two, who I think preferred the other one at the time. But this is the one that seems to have held up in terms of people going, this was the masterpiece worth studying. And I, I not having seen the other one, I, I, I can't argue the, the contrast, but I can say I see why people still think of this as a deeply important and beautiful film. Um, the performance by this lead actress, who, by the way, before this had only ever done comedy. She was a well-known comedian at the time. Renee Jean Falconetti is so heartfelt and like, I mean, it's just nonstop. Like I said, extreme close-ups on her face going through this agony as she's discussing, you know, trying to convince this trial of, 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 uh, bishops that yes, I really, God did talk to me and they're trying to sarcastically make her look stupid. And she keeps coming up with the right answers. (laughs) Um, and watching certain of the, Bishop slowly kind of coming around to at least feeling real empathy for her and her situation and kind of believing her while still realizing her fate is sealed that you can't go up against city hall. Yeah. <laughs> um, even the, the, the people playing the other roles and the main uh, interrogator and everything that was so good in this. Um, but it's the quality of the shots and the way it kind of takes you out of space and time because it's so intimate when you're watching it, you're just kind of, right in the middle of the thing with them. 
And I would say, and this goes addresses something that wasn't part of the original movie, what this Criterion uh, version of this did with, first off, there's multiple versions of this. There's a silent version, there's a 20 frames per second version, there's a, and there's uh, a 24 uh, frames per second version. And for each of these have uh, varieties on what score you can watch them with. There's uh, Voices of Light uh, from 1994 by Richard Einhorn, which is a choral and orchestral uh, composition by a vocal group, Anonymous Four, uh, and a the Netherlands a Radio Philharmonic, Philharmonic Inquire. There's the uh, Will Gregory and Adrian Utley score, which is uh, the guys from Goldfrapp and Portishead. This is the one I kind of watched half and half of this movie of half watching this score, which I thought was great. Not what I would have expected, per se, but really good. Yeah. And then half with... Um, a audio commentary, which was extremely informative and, and, uh, was like, you know, I was like, maybe I'll flip back and forth, but once I started listening to the commentary. Yeah, the commentary makes this worth owning. It's like going to film school, like a crash, like a film school crash course on like two hours. Oh, completely. It's, it's a great, great audio commentary track. The, oh, and there's the, I'm sorry, there's the, the Mi Yanashita track, which is a piano score by a Japanese silent film composer. I don't think I heard that one. I, I, Oh yeah, I I listened to the uh the nineties one in the two thousand uh five no, the two thousand what ten? The one from the the Portishead. Yeah, and, yeah. 2010. Yeah, I listened to the two. I liked. I preferred the 2010 score to the 90s score, but I don't think I even tried the piano one. No, I didn't either. I did uh, not get around. There's to a it. supplement because that's is, only on the 20 FPS version. Yeah, and, and there's a supplement as to why the frame rates are different, and talks about the pros and cons of the frame rates as well. That I found really interesting. A lot of it had to do with the way technology was at the time and like hand crank speeds. Uh, but I, I, before I even started watching this, I went online and started reading people's opinions about which one was the superior. And it felt like overwhelmingly people were like, I think the 24 FPS is definitely the one to watch. So I just watched that one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, um, there's a lot of, it's, it's got one of the, the, one of those rare criterion releases lately that actually has a full blown book with it, basically, instead of just a fold out pamphlet, uh, which is nice. I always like it when they do that. Uh, brand new video interview with, uh, Richard Einhorn talking about his work into composing the score. Um, there's Adrian Utley and Will Gregory about their score. There is a archival audio interview with Helene Falconetti, who was the daughter of Renee Falconetti, the, the Joan, uh, who uh, talks about her acting philosophy, how she was cast. There's a, uh, as you said, the version history, which talks about the different versions of it. There's a production design archive with archival production skills, uh, with a piano score and text descriptions in, in English. This is a, I, I feel like overall, this is one of the, like, if you really consider yourself a student of film, pretty much the essential Criterion release I've seen this year. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's going to be for everyone, but then again, it's a silent film, so by definition, it's not going yeah, to Yeah, I would say specifically if you're, uh, if you're someone who watches movies because you're interested in making them, then it's worth watching and, and worth exploring, especially the supplemental material, which you, know, should, you should find – you should learn some things – and be inspired by some of the things that you hear in the supplemental material. Um, it's very inspiring. Yeah. That 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 uh, commentary track. There's just so much there with talk analyzing in a very easy to understand and very involved way. Why he chose to do the shots he did mm -hmm. and what it means, and that is in and of itself kind of a film 101 for cinematography. Yeah. Uh, and I I found it fascinating. 
All right, Passion of Jonah Arc. Uh, next up, we have a film that I, I'm, that is either going to be people's favorite film they saw on this list or their least favorite, and I fall into the latter um, because I don't get it. I, I, I well, I get what there's going after in this film. Like me, I just didn't like it. I got it real quick, and it made it. Uh, it uh, yeah, it made it close to insufferable. Uh, it was. I I will say this. I think it's a personal taste deal. It was not a movie for me. No. I got what they were trying to say and do within 15 minutes, and then I wanted out. Like, I, I, it was not for me. It's a, it's a, the YouTube look at me generation is horrible film. Yes. And it's trying to do it in a very artistic style, but most of the time it came out looking like a Tim and Eric's episode to me. <laughs> there's an overall, yeah, there's an overall cheapness that hampers some of the, desire for visual splendor. Mm -hmm. Uh, the film wants to look, the film wants to look better than it can. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, which is, which is tricky when you're doing something that's so artsy that you're trying to set up shots where you're like, this is going to look really, really great. And it's sort of like a couple thousand dollars and it would have looked really, really great. Like a, like a little bit more budget and you would have gotten what was in your head but as it is, there's a cheapness to it. There's well, something like... And the last 40 minutes where it really gets into that type of effects work yeah. is interminable. It's hard to sit through. Yeah. Lots of lots of uh, uh, editing as well. So not just, not just production design, art design, like artsy-fartsy stuff, but like a lot of digital glitches and squelching and cutting to random YouTubers saying things yeah. that are supposed to reflect the the emptiness and the hollowness of an existence where you're asking someone like me, like me. Uh, Addison Timlin plays Kaya, who she is our central asshole, basically who makes videos. uh, And we see her at first. She's so unlikable from the start. Right. Yeah. Her first scene is her harassing this guy wearing a mask. She's wearing a mask in a gas station and basically uh, like filming him and then scares him into pissing himself. And then watching the series of video responses from people who like half an hour either love it or are shocked by it. And then the one guy who's like her Moriarty, who's another YouTuber who just spends his time making elaborate taking down what a horrible piece of shit human being she is and how useless she is as an artist with her videos. So it goads her into going, well, I need to up my game. And that leads to her, uh, going into this hotel, abducting the hotel owner played by Larry Fessenden. It's always nice to see Larry, but you know, and when you see that it's a glass, I picks production, you can pretty much guarantee he's going to be in it. Right. (laughs) And it turning into this weird sort of pseudo sexual, a kidnapping situation where she's abducting him and she's filming him doing, forcing him to do weird shit like eating till he pukes and things like that. But there's also a sexual element to it all between the two of them. And that being awkward because he keeps commenting on how much older he is than her. Cause she's just a barely, she looks yeah. like she's barely 18. Yeah. Um, and we just kind of follow her as she's like deciding how far does she need to go to gain basically without her having to say it out loud, but implied to gain the respect of this one guy eventually leading up to actual violence. And are we supposed to feel sympathy for her? I'm not, or are we supposed to feel nothing, but like, is it just entirely just, she is a symbol for how much this director writer is despises the internet. <laughs> I don't, I'm not really clear either way. I found it a slog. Yeah. I I did too, and it was sort of, yeah, 
I don't have anything really to add to any of that. It it wasn't for me, and I felt like the thing it was trying to say, which is like, hmm, our desire for social media presence might be a sickness. And I'm like, I got that. And then, and then, where else did the movie have to go? Yeah. And I'm like, the movie isn't, uh, and, you know, not only is it can it not look as good as I think it wants to, it also isn't as deep as I think it wants to be. And it's sort of like, okay, yeah, I've, I've kind of like, hey, man, the internet's going to like mess us all up, man. <laughs> no. And it's like, and then it doesn't go any further. And it's sort of like, all right. I, I mean, it was not, at its I did best, not enjoy it. At its best, once Fessenden shows up, he adds some, some engagement with the viewer to the proceedings. Um, that she finally has someone to actually talk to, you yeah. know, and it takes too long to get there as is, but that, it's not enough. It doesn't keep you going. I think there's maybe 15 minutes I kind of perked up, and then I was just like, okay, this isn't going anywhere. Yeah, it wasn't for me. Not, not a John movie. And despite being the kind of film that you would expect a, a little bit more insightful of a, a look from the creators of it, an explanation, a talking about the making of, the making of documentary that comes with it is less than five minutes long, and it's basically just an EPK trailer. Uh, there's a photo gallery, no commentary, uh, South by Southwest teaser trailer, theatrical trailer. That's it. Um, oh, there's people out there that like this. I yes. talked to people at South by who came out kind of raving about yeah, it. There, but, there are people that like it, but festival madness, <laughs> festival madness. I think, you know, I think too, if you, if you like things that are, uh, bad, cheap and exper- <laughs> cheap and experimental is what I was going to say. <laughs> um, there might be something, there's a little bit of like, uh, those kind of movies that have that kind of like art house trash culture vibe, like what's the uh, what's the Lily Amanpour post apocalyptic movie uh, with with uh, Aquaman in it <laughs> with Jason Momoa about the cannibals that like cut girls' legs off and this one. Oh yeah, the Bad off. Batch. The Bad Oof. Batch. So like like me, you know they're they're not similar in regards to plot at all, but they kind of are like this like. They're kind of like trashy art house. Right. So it's like trash house movies. Like, yeah. like sort of. It's this thing that art exploitation as a yeah. distribution uh, company puts out that succeeds one out of every six times. Yeah. You know? They're not necessarily pleasant to watch. They usually try to be ambitiously visual. Um, but I don't think they're for me. If you like that sort of thing, I'd say there are a few good examples. I thought, um, uh, what was it? Der Samurai, I believe it was called. Uh, it was a, it was an art exploitation release, but that was pretty good. And there's that one from South by from like or Fantastic Fest from like two years ago about the the kid who's clearly like a forty something year old, but he dresses like he's got like a blonde bob haircut and lives oh with his yeah, parents. god that that movie has a but see, something yeah uh, god what is the name of that movie? But it has a lot to say about education and the yeah. education and system I and stuff really like that. Liked like, that movie. Yeah, but uh, um, I sorry, I can't remember the name. Can't remember the, it's on Amazon. Yeah, um, I can't remember the name. Look of for the movie that looks weird with a blonde bob hair guy that has Doss. I think Shutter. Has that they do. film, they do. Uh, whatever it's called. Is it just called Das Education? It's no, it's not. Das it's like, something. I can't remember. I can't remember either. Anyways. Um, all right, so do you watch The Walking Dead? Uh, no, I don't watch The Walking Dead. So you never watched The Walking Dead? I watched season one. I thought every episode got. Ex- I thought the first episode was fantastic. I thought every episode was half as good as the one before until by the end of the first season, I was like, I straight up don't like this show. Now, that said, I have read every issue of the Walking Dead comic. Right. Um, I trade – Walking Dead, I trade weight 
But I now own I do like too. thirty volumes of Walking Dead. I, I, I wait so. and I get the the hardback, super okay, nice you get, edition you get ones. The for each ones one. Yeah, yeah, because it's like one of those. Once you get onto like a collection like that, starting with the first one, you're like, okay, I guess I'm just getting these now. There <laughs> were there was. Uh, yeah, so that's that's where I come from with my Walking Dead knowledge. I did not feel left behind by what's the name yeah, of this Robot thing? Chickens Walking Dead special. I did not feel left behind by Robot Chickens Walking Dead special. Okay. I knew the characters, and 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 the show has been memified enough where if I anything major it. happened, yeah. you got it. Yeah, because it's jokes and stuff like that. This is them doing all a, uh, a Walking Dead thing that is told from the viewpoint of the guy, their nerd character, going into a museum. That's supposed to be after the events of The Walking Dead, after the apocalypse has been, the zombie thing has been cured, and going into a museum where the, the, where the guy is getting everything wrong about the history of them. And then basically an older version of the kid, uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, Carl. Carl. Like, yeah. shows up and goes, this is all bullshit, here's the real story. And then it's a series of robots, chicken-style clips that go in continuous order of like the plot of the show of just kind of hitting the, the big plot moments from the show. Uh, and then a few more obscure ones and making jokes of it. Now, what is more, the one thing I will say, wow, that was quite, quite an accomplishment. They actually got all of the cast of the walking dead to come in and voice their own characters. Yeah. So this is, there's no, not one exception. They're all the actors who played those roles. Even the people who've been dead for like four seasons came back to do it. And that's kind of funny in and of itself. Um, I didn't think this was overwhelmingly great for a robot chicken special, though. No, uh, you're probably right about that. This I would have been more forgiving about this if I was like 13 or 14 years old mm-hmm. and a Walking Dead fan. This might hit some kind of a sweet spot, but uh, you know, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. I'm neither a Walking Dead TV fan nor am I 13 or 14 years old. So again, this was one that I felt like just wasn't for me. From a product standpoint, I I felt like it could have used more. Mm-hmm. Like it sure is. Twenty two uh, minutes is yeah, lean. Yeah, um, <laughs> and it's like if you're someone who like used to watch The Walking Dead and you hated it, thinking this might be the thing for you, it's not because this is clearly made by people who really enjoy The Walking Dead. On the whole, it's not calling out The Walking Dead for the times it does stuff that's just dumb. It's yeah. doing robot chickeny like what if this happened instead moments. And yeah, like, it's live action Mad Magazine, yeah, sort of. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I kind of felt like this could have used a little more cruelty, but then again, when you've got the entire cast, you know, how, how mean can you really be to the show? Uh, and I still watch The Walking Dead. I'm that guy who's like, yeah, it's not, I don't even know why I'm still watching it, but it's, it's, it's sadness porn. <laughs> I have to. I should say that I'm probably indifferent to Robot Chicken in general. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm a, I'm a geek, and it should tickle me more than it does. Um, I, mean, I like the Star Wars specials better than this, but even so, I feel like Robot Chicken always worked best when you have no idea what's about to come up next. When it's yeah. just a random throw, everything at the wall. This could be any obscure geek reference because the surprise of it is always a little more pleasant than just, well, now we know exactly what we're going to get. Their hit miss ratio on laughs to me is off. I, I, I find that for, you know, for, you know, 22 minutes of, for instance, the Walking Dead special, and I probably thought one thing was clever or funny, and sitting here, I can't remember what the, what that particular thing was. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I find that, like, yeah, it's just, 
I, I just, I think I, I think I may be too old. I just may be too old for it yeah. at this point. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I was feeling the same way. Yeah. And, and then it, you know, the one thing I would be interested in, in watching this was because I've heard from a couple people now. There's two commentary tracks on here with stories from Robert Kirkman, Scott M. Gimple, and Josh McDermott talking about a lot of like behind the scenes stories and stuff. And they were like, that's actually better than the robot chicken episode itself. And oh, wow. having listened to Robert Kirkman on quite a few podcasts, he's a genuinely funny intelligent and entertaining as hell guy to listen to. Um, even though I just realized he sounds, his voice is indistinguishable to me from Tyler Levine. I can't tell the difference when I'm hearing them. They should put them on a show together. But there's a lot of bonus features on here that are kind of useless, unless this is really, really your thing. Um, a lot of thing where they had like people who were the creators of the, all the things where they were like, Oh, we're putting them in a room to interview them. What they don't know, a guy in zombie makeup is going to come up and scare them. And you're like, really? That's okay. That's yeah. like. This feels like something that would have been on MTV in like the late eighties. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and just a lot of them kind of going over and over and over how great they think they are, like in- interviewing everyone about what their favorite part of the special was <laughs> and, <laughs> and cut sketches that are just storyboards that, yeah, you see why they were cut because they're even less funny than the stuff that's in there. There's people who love this stuff and I say, great, because I don't think it's terrible. It's just not really for me. And maybe I've kind of lost, I've always been harder on humor comedy than anything else, but there was a time I found robot chicken a lot more pleasant. And this was kind of, this really felt like a slog. Yeah, it was not, it was, uh, it was the first thing I watched out of the stack of stuff. Cause I knew it was quick and it's probably the one I remember the least about. I couldn't tell you, I've been mean, sitting here, I watched it and I can't tell you one of the sketches. Like, right. I can't from memory, not one. Well, our next film is my second least favorite thing on the list, <laughs> and I was really actually kind of anticipating this. This is the sequel to a uh, 2007 film, The Man from Earth, which was kind of one of those could just as easily just been a one-room one play with a group of characters with a guy um, uh, played by – what is his name? Oh, my God. I'm forgetting his name. David Lee Smith. If you watch a lot of television, you've probably seen him on stuff. But this is his one big claim to fame, where he plays a guy as a university professor. A lot of other professors show up after he's not announced he's leaving suddenly. But like, hey, we heard and we didn't want you to leave without us sharing a bottle of wine together or whatever. And uh, it comes out that he, he ends up admitting to them very reluctantly that he is a ancient caveman who's just been alive for thousands and thousands of years and doesn't even know why, but he appears to be immortal. And them... In a assuming at first this is just a game, an intellectual game, and them sort of asking him questions and him being able to counter them, some of them start to become become angry, some of them start to become convinced, and some of them are just totally bemused by the entire thing. And I thought that was a really entertaining watch of a movie, despite being incredibly low budget with some questionable performances from some of the other actors. Yeah. And and so here we have the sequel yeah. where it's Man about a from bunch Earth of hollow scene. It's about a bunch of college students that spend the entire run of the movie talking about the conversations from the first movie. Right. They talk about the plot of the first movie for like an hour and a half. Yeah. I mean the only time this movie lights up at all is when it spends way too little time with David Lee Smith as as John Oldman or now he's John Young. He always uses his name as kind of a pun on his condition. Uh where when he's actually having a new philosophical discussion about something, the movie kind of brightens up for a minute. But there's so much time spent on these terrible annoying teenagers and and just the bad decisions that they make 
throughout this. Basically, they he's their professor. They all love them. One of them creepily, they keep mentioning, wants to fuck him. Um, and that that's a whole story element that they should have left out of this movie entirely because yeah. it does not work and it comes to nothing. Yeah. Um, and realizing through a series of like pointless to even bother mentioning uh, events that we we think our professor is this guy in a book that was written by William Katz's character from the first film that who used to be a professor taken very seriously but then he released a book about his meeting this guy and finally beginning to believe him and everyone laughed him out of academia at that point and they were like look at all these coincidences Anyway, and like, oh, we're going to prove that he is this guy. And to mixed results, including one of them being a very serious Christian and is is like both fascinated and repulsed by the idea because one of the key things in the first movie is that moment where he admits, I was Jesus Christ. Mm. Uh, there, There is no son of – I don't know if there's a God. <laughs> yeah. I, I came here because I had hung out with Buddha and thought his ideas were amazing and the Western world could use them. And then, yeah, shit went, he, shit went sideways. He's human coexist bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it just there's just so much as you said people talking about the first movie and so little adding anything and that new. was my deal is like so I did the homework of watching the first one when I got the stack I was like well I've never seen the original so I watched the first one and I couldn't believe like the audience for a sequel to this you have to assume are people that have seen the first one yet there's yet this movie is is so much hand holding about all of the discussions and events that took place in the first one. Well, no one is going to discover this by I was like, what was, who? Because you would think if, like, oh, we had a really nice reaction to our first movie, you would think that it would be, let's think of something really cool. You know, it just armchair sequelizing. What if there was somebody else who claimed to be an immortal, and he had to question whether or not they really were or whether they were insane. Like, he found himself in the skeptic's end of going, this other person that says they're immortal, I've never come across them before, but I know that I am. So is it possible? Yes. But are they just nuts? Like, there's so many places that even just off the top of my head, I was like, that could have been the sequel. That could have been the mm-hmm. sequel. That could have been the sequel. Instead, the sequel is, hey, what if uh, what if younger actors talk about all the same stuff that we talked about in the I previous just, somebody, movie? It felt like producers going, we're not going to give you the money unless you give us some young people. Nobody wants to watch a movie about a bunch of old people. Not like it matters, because the way they released this film was they put it out on torrent sites, and we're like, here you go, take it. The producers yeah. put this out and said, please watch this movie, but if you like it, go ahead and buy it, because there's some extra stuff on here. And, and in fact, to their credit, there's a shit ton of bonus features on this desk. I didn't explore any of the bonus features. I, I found the movie so... Uh, kind of stillborn that I had no interest in exploring why it was. Stillborn. Did you enjoy the first one? To some degree, I think the first one. If I were sitting in a in a theater watching actors do it on stage, because the first one's almost the first one's all talk. It's a stage play, and if I were watching that as a stage play, the first one, I probably would have liked it about ten times more than as a movie. I found it, I found it completely uncinematic as a movie. And the problem I had with the first movie is that I don't think – this is a little bit armchair quarterbacking, but I don't think that the – I don't think that his honesty is is enough of a question mark for the audience. And because I knew – I think 
I think it's a matter of the movie wants you to know that, oh, he's immortal, and this is about all his friends finding out he's immortal. And what that creates is it creates an issue where you as an audience member don't need any convincing. Mm -hmm. And yet all the conversation is about the convincing. And so it's a little bit difficult as a film. I think as a, I think as a film for me, I would have liked to have been in the, in the shoes of the people that are in the room with him instead of in his shoes. I would have rather been, I, I want to be convinced. Yeah. Like I want to call, I want, I want more questioning as to whether this guy's nuts or whether he really did Forrest Gump himself through every major historical event, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and so that, again, that's a little, that's a little armchair quarterbacky, but that's where I stand on. I mean, on the one original. of the reasons the original even got made was because Jerome Bixby wrote it and it was found basically among his effects by his son after he died. Jerome Bixby is known for writing some of the all time great sci-fi television show episodes like Mirror Mirror mm -hmm. on Star Trek, as well as the Day of the Dove, Requiem for Methuselah by any other name. He wrote the story for Fantastic Voyage. Uh, and, uh, it's a good life from Twilight Zone. And there's a lot of Star Trek connection in both the first and second one. In the first one, you have John Billingsley, who played Dr. Phlox on Enterprise. He's, right. he's a big character. He also it. appears Tony Todd, in here. Yeah, Tony Todd, who played multiple characters on Star Trek, is in the first old, one. Old, the second one, you see Michael Worf. Cisco's son. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you get, uh, Michael Worf in the second one. So you do have Michael, Michael little, Dorn. Michael Dorn. Michael Worf. <laughs> Michael like, McWarf. In, in this for such a short period yeah. of time, and you're like, I, what purpose did your character serve in this film? Because it felt like they were going, he's going to be the character of one of the yeah. other characters from the first film type of character. But yeah. no, he's like barely in it. Yeah, maintain that Star Trek connection. And then Vanessa Williams plays his girlfriend, who is also kind of, why is she even in this movie? Was there any reason for him to even have a girlfriend character in this movie? Uh, it just... She goes from like, oh, it's sweet to See, and like, then there's another sequel idea. What if he would have gotten her pregnant? Yeah. What if it was what about was him happen? going, well, do I leave my child behind? Like, I didn't mean to actually like... Which was a big issue in the first one. I didn't even, you know, th like, I just... There's so much more that could have been explored. Even, gosh, even remove that, like, child angle, just from a romantic standpoint. Like, the idea of... It doesn't matter if I love somebody, I just straight up have to leave them. Did you watch The Stinger? So, Post no, mid credit I stinger. I did not watch mid credit stinger. There's a mid credit stinger that I was like, oh boy. They where, set up the third one. Yeah, where I'm like, seriously? Where it's insinuating, you remember there's that mention at some point, like like there's a killer out there or something, oh, and like man. and so it insinuates that this guy who shows up at, at, at I believe it was Vanessa Williams door who they shade his face so you can't see him. So you assume it's the other immortal guy who's It turns out who's to be Christopher evil, Lambert. But pretend right? He <laughs> pretends to be an FBI guy looking for for uh, the professor. So All it's right. like, I guess if they make a third one, which seems unlikely. Men from Earth. Men from Earth. This is, um, I, I guess someone out there liked this, because I, I was going on Reddit and reading some reviews that were positive, but I think overall this was largely slammed. I mean, the, the strongest moments in this is when with the kid who's Christian, who basically abducts him and is, is like, like, I demand you tell me you're you're not actually immortal. And then he's like, I demand you do tell me you're immortal. <laughs> and that's a f interesting, that's where you get into the stuff with the feels from the first one of an interesting philosophical conversation. Yeah. But even that goes on too long and kind of reaches a point like this discussion should be over. You're just going in circles now. Um, which is like having that discussion with anybody who's a true believer, but that's just my opinion. Yeah. Um, there's, like I said, lots of extra features on here, including like Q and A's from film festivals, red carpet interviews, uh, uh, just a few deleted scenes that aren't really that, that useful. Can, I, 
help me out here. What what's what does the title mean? Did I miss that? Holocene. He was saying we are we are technically living in the Holocene period now, uh, and there's an argument that the reason why he's starting to age uh, finally is because we have left the Holocene into a new age. Okay. Yeah, that he is a man of the Holocene period, but now that that's ending, maybe he's going to as well, which is not really that relevant, but whatever. I mean, yeah, that's the one. They had to write something like that because the actor is notably older looking. (laughs) So there had to be a why am I aging It's funny. At the beginning, the college students are talking about, they're like, the one that wants to have sex with him, that they dress like an adult's idea of what college students dress like. Right. Like she wears leather baseball caps and chokers. And I'm like, I haven't seen a single person in 2018. Like, uh, anyways. It was um, a, a Brittany Curran who's actually pretty popular right now on the show The Magicians. Yeah. I don't know if you watch that. I think it's actually no, a pretty I, solid show. No, I don't. They, but they dress her odd in this movie. They, um, her whole storyline is so creepy. That she's just trying to fuck, yeah. trick him into fucking her. Well, at one point, they mention that he's 40. And yeah. I'm like... I'm 42, and that guy looks at least 15 years older yeah, than me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So our last film today is a movie I've actually looked forward to watching for a long time. Never got around to as a oh, fan okay. of a Giallo movies and a fan specifically of Dario Argento and Lamberto Bava's films Demons and Demons 2. This movie, The Church, uh, has gone through a lot of different titles, but that's even when I first heard of it, it was known as The Church. Produced by Dario Argento, directed by Michelle Suave, who did a lot of movies I really like a lot. Um, uh, and was often touted as Demons 3. And let me tell you, this is not Demons You 3. do re- realize that the last time you had me on, we did another Michelle Suave movie about, oh, there's a hole in the floor of this building that happens to lead to hell. Right? Like, yeah. like, it was like, uh, it was almost, uh, you know, I understand Martin Scorsese has done a number of gangster movies, but... This plot seems so specific for someone to explore multiple times. <laughs> uh, it's thought of as Demons 3 because that was how it was first conceived. And you can see why, because ultimately it ends up with a bunch of innocent people locked into a church while people are getting infected and turning into demons. However, it never, ever feels like it. As Michel Suave said himself, I don't even like the Demons films that much. They feel like, I th- he called them like pizza something. I, I can't, where he was like, yeah, they're just silly schlock. And this is a more serious gothic film. And like... Not really. Um, it is notable for being one of the first on-screen appearances of Asia Argento, uh, yeah. Dario Argento's daughter, who plays a major role in here, or, or I guess technically two major roles, because it starts off in medieval Germany, watching a bunch of knights slay a bunch of innocent townspeople, uh, just murderize the fuck out of them, and one of them in question who who gets it bad is clearly Asia Argento. Flash to modern day, there's this church that they have built over the pit where they buried all the bodies of the people who were who they thought were were demon worshippers. Great idea. Worked great in Poltergeist too. Um the the church is we're assuming they're they're we're told it's there to keep them their evil from rising. So we'll put a symbol of God over it, right? So this new librarian, Thomas Arena, uh it discovers the seal over the crypt and breaks it and it releases the spirits. There's demon possession type stuff going on. And at that moment when that happens and it takes way too long to get to that moment, holy shit. It's like the halfway mark of the film. Um, the, this crazy and my favorite thing about the movie automated like Rube Goldberg mechanism inside the church causes the doors and everything in the church to like lock and close all the people in there. Yeah. The idea there's is- like a field trip going on in there and there's like a, a, uh, some kind of like half, like I guess they're supposed to be in their late teens. <laughs> some kind of teenage couple that's having a spat are in there. Yeah, lots of people with like 
mini storylines. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of like one, two sentence storylines. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Asia Argenta, who's the one we're shown early on, knows a secret way out of the church. In fact, she's not even in the church when all this is going on because she, her dad's the priest and she snuck out to go party. <laughs> and so we all know what it's got to come to. She's got to come back to the church and release whoever the surviving characters might be out. Um, which there's like a, like another character who's sort of a love interest for the librarian who's working on the frescoes and stuff in there. And I, it's, this movie takes way too long to get anywhere. Uh, the one thing I'll say, the church is gorgeous. It's a beautiful, old, old church. Like it was a real church. They, they filmed this in that was like apparently one of the oldest churches in the country where they filmed it. Um, and it is really gorgeous. There's some silly fun stuff with that leads to like, what was it? I read one critic, critic saying this suffers from uh, a uh, ARB or what he calls after Rosemary's Baby, <laughs> which is we're kind of doing that. We're doing the Satan is here to impregnate someone to put his child in, and yeah, it's kind just of like, a, well, the other. The, what was the name of the other Michelle Soavi movie from last time? I don't even remember now. It was the it was the other one about. Uh, it, and I want to say it had a the it was like the Pact or something like that or the something, but it was the other one. Uh, oh, the the sect. The sect, yeah. Yeah, the sect was the one... Which, by that, the way, was also called in some releases Demons 4. Which, they're basically, <laughs> like, the same... They're they're very, very similar movies. They both have the thing where, yeah, the devil wants to... I mean, this guy's one film that I would say unquestionably, to me, is a great film and totally worth owning as Cemetery Man. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, you're like, eh, it's a mixed bag. Stage Fright was pretty good, but not great. Yeah. You know, I like Suave. I even, I say I like the pact and I like this, but neither one of them is an essential or great, like, he's like a visual stylist. Film. He's not a great storyteller. No, he's not. And this film has so many awkward moments with that. Mm-hmm. It does have a halfway decent score. Yeah. Which, which I'll say, uh, Goblin, who of course did our, our, some of the greatest scores ever recorded for Dario Argento, movies like Deep Red and, uh, uh, Suspiria, uh, worked on here. I want to, I'm trying to remember who it is. Uh, one of the God, one of the guys from uh, um, Keith Emerson and Philip Glass w- worked on the score with Goblin. That's crazy. That's a crazy. I would listen to albums by that team up of people working together. It's like yeah. the ultimate prog rock assemble. And, and I think it is. It's it's well worth listening to for the the, the score. It but, was one I'd always seen images of in horror magazines or like working yeah. in the video store in the back of the box or books that are like the 50 greatest horror movies you've never seen, that kind of stuff. Sure. And I'd see pictures from this and go, wow, that looks really cool. But then when you're watching the movie, those moments are staged like photographs anyways. Yeah. And it's like they have no narrative punch. They're just literally, I had the same reaction as seeing the photo, which is, oh, that looks cool. And when it's in the movie and those happen, you're just like, well, that looks cool. Doesn't affect really the plot. Doesn't even affect the tone. It's not like then, then it's all of a sudden like, wow, now I'm freaked out or now I'm scared. <laughs> it's just little moments of occasional, oh, that's pretty neat. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, agreed. Um, the, like the, the when you finally see the big demon, hey, that's cool looking. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, but, like, you know, yeah. there's no, you're like, it almost feels like you're, when you, when even when you see them, it's like kind of from a distance through an archway and you're like, you feel like you're, you're, you're in a museum yourself just looking at exhibits. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're looking at a movie, not watching a movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's entertaining enough and people who love this sort of thing will get some kicks out of it, uh, but pardon It has me. that weird, it has that weird, even though this cast has people that are like, like, I know I've seen in American films, 
it still has that weird, not from this planet style of like giving dialogue and the <laughs> things that they say, like the dialogue and the delivery of the dialogue is literally from <laughs> another planet. Like it, it does not sound like human beings or the way human beings talk or speak or interact to the point where coming so hot off the sect, which I had just seen like a month ago, right. I was like, I'm not sure that he's ever had any conversations with anyone ever. Like, <laughs> like I don't know that he's spoken to another person he's, ever, other than maybe he's had conversations with Dario Argento, but right. I don't think that his realm of human experience has is displayed. So obviously one of those guys who kind of grew up under the aegis of Argento, mm-hmm. kind of like, I'm a big fan. He's like, well, come on then, make your own movies. I'll help you out. As did Mario Bava's son, Lamberto Bava, who also was kind of like, Come on, I'll help you out, kid. Let me let me let me show you how, how this is done. Uh, all that being said, so I'll be talking shit about demons after making these two films. Trust me, if you're going to pick between the sect and the church, or demons and demons too, you want to watch demons and demons too. Oh yeah, they're they're certainly more memorable. They're of a type, but they're uh, they still have that same yeah. thing with that otherworldly nobody talks like that dialogue. Yeah. But that's so. I mean, even some of the best Argento films have that. Where you're like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> People just say weird shit. Yeah, the Fulci films are are that way too. I mean, I think like- it suffers a lot from the fact that the directors don't speak English like at all. And so they're writing their script in Italian, and then someone else is translating it into English. And then they do the weird thing where it's like, it's obvious they're not capturing dialogue on set. Mm-hmm. And so they're everything is ADR'd. Yeah, in so Italian even, cinema. So even an American actor doing, doing an, giving an American performance is dubbed with his own voice and it's always the line readings are always just slightly off kilter and it's it's, a lot of this reminded me the dialogue just to my ear like music reminded me of the way that characters talk in the very very first playstation resident evil game it's like (laughs) why don't you jill take this you know the whole like i'm the master of unlocking that all that stuff yeah (laughs) barry it's a a a monster like that i've been told was very intentional yeah yeah so (laughs) a lot of the stuff reminded me of that like early video game acting where you're like no that's not how you would say that (laughs) anyways yeah no you're right but that was like i mean that was it didn't matter any italian like genre film coming out like westerns giallo mysteries uh polizzi they all adr'd for every audience, like even the Italian version with Italian language was ADR, and part of the reason for that was because they wanted to get just whatever was the the like different actors that might be known in different regions, right? Mm-hmm. So any given set would have people who didn't even speak the same fucking language acting together and were just like doing their best to react at the appropriate moment, not speaking the other guy's language, and the actors yeah. would actually be speaking their own language on set because they know it would all get ADR'd over anyway. Yeah, very strange, very strange it, way. It gives the movies things. a distinct flavor. It really does. Uh, the Blu-ray comes with an interview with Suave, uh, which is actually pretty interesting. Him talking about his history with Argento, how he got into horror. Um, uh, it, the interview with Asia, uh, who's always loquacious and fun to listen to, although she clearly barely remembers making this film. And it's no big surprise. She's in her 40s now, and she was look, looked like she was 14 when she made this. So, um, And there's a trailer for it, uh, along with a few other films from this label. I mean, like I said, if you're a fan of this type of of Italian horror, totally check this out. I think you'll you'll at least have a mild amount of fun with it, and it's one that it's not it's not terrible. It's just it should have been better. 
it's I did th- I did think it was kind of terrible. Okay, uh, I think it's watchably terrible. There's my there's okay. My, no, that's I, I, I think I would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, when I go to terrible with when I'm talking already about Italian horror movies, I mean, not watchably oh, there's terrible. yeah, there's okay, there is terrible, and then there's this. Um, <laughs> I don't think it was. It's kind of odd. So if I'm going to compare it to the sect real quick. I think that the horror visuals in this are stronger than the ones in the sect. So just in regards to horror imagery, there's stronger horror imagery than this, than the sect. But I think the sect overall looks nicer. It has a gloss. It looks almost Tony Scott-esque, like like 80s music it's, video it's a style. a little more arty yeah, than this is. Um, this was trying to go for some sort of, I don't know, hammer goth? Yeah, I think I if, you're, if you're faced with a two and you want to try one, I would go with the church over the sect. Would you? I, yeah, I would. I'd choose the church over the sect. It's a little, it's a touch pulpier. Uh, again, I think the horror imagery is stronger. Um, and it doesn't, it's not as, um, I think the sect has longer dry spells when you're watching it than the church does. I think the church has little odd moments that provide a little bit more of something to engage you. Like you talked about the, the weird clock mechanism, which reminded me a lot of like, the thing from Chronos, uh, from Del Toro's Chronos, right? Uh, I could see the influence there on on Del Toro. Um, so it has some things that I felt like were a little more arresting than the sect. If I was forced to choose between the two, all right, you heard it here first from John Golson. The sect is his favorite movie, um, <laughs> or the church. Sorry, the church is his favorite movie, uh, even though it's watchably terrible. Um, so that's it for digital noise for this week. I'll be back in probably less than a week with our next episode with Aaron. I gave him an in- intimidating stack. I had one of those still catching up things and the stack built up super fast. And I was like, Oh shit. So he was like handed him the stack and he's like, all right, how terrible are these films? And as it turns out, he got lucky. He got a good mix of stuff where it was like really easy to watch genre shit. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Most of the, he got Paddington too. Yeah, <laughs> which is great if you haven't seen it, by the way. Uh, you know, I just watched the first one, and it was as good as I had heard. And second one's even better. Cool. Yeah, yeah. This was a this was an interesting group of films in that in that I felt like every one of them, even something as even something as TV based as Walking Dead, they all felt like films that probably had staunch defenders. Yep. I'm sure there are people that staunchly defend Robot Chicken. <laughs> I'm, uh, oh, there definitely are. Yeah. I'm sure there are people who staunchly defend uh, Man from Earth Hollow. Yep. Oh, I already know that there are. So, yeah. so yeah, it was interesting to see. I think that that if there's anything unifying, it's probably that these are all films that have their own cults, however small. Uh, that and that I made you watch all of them, and that and, yeah, <laughs> that you made me watch all of them. Sorry about that. That's okay. Ringo was mine. I like Ringo. Ringo <laughs> You're was all cool for Ringo. Shit. I loved Ringo. Hey, he may be the, the in spaghetti western terms the fourth Beatle, but yeah. um, he's still worth watching. I, I did like that. 